it's not just about killing people. It's not just about dominating power over his victims, but he wants to show off and he wants to feel in, in uh, superior to the police and to the press. People bloody love these episodes with psychiatrist Dr. Shaham Das. I'm actually meeting him in the flesh for the first time at CrimeCon in London mid-June. So come along to that if you want to meet me, Dr. Shaham Das, Sean Atwood, Kerry Danes, who was on the podcast as well. Many, many more figures in the true crime realm. I'm sort of on the fringes of it, I suppose, that true crime world, as I occasionally do episodes about subjects that are true crimey. Anyway, I love doing these episodes with Shaham, where we look into the minds of serial killers or some sort of horrible person. These ones are pretty gruesome today, and we're starting with the famous Zodiac Killer, so named because he used to sign his letters to the press and the police with various symbols, the first of which was allegedly a Zodiac sign. You may have seen the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. He's a horrific serial killer. The Zodiac Killer, Jake Gyllenhaal, doesn't play that role. Uh, But in real life, the guy's never been caught but he used to taunt us all with his letters about his crimes. Dr. Shahamdas is a real-life psychiatrist who has dealt with some very intense cases in his illustrious career. He is known for his YouTube channel now, A Psych for Sore Minds. So do check that out and follow him on Twitter on at PsychSore. I'm on AndrewGold underscore OK. Send us any questions you have about these episodes. Do check out the other episode out today about Robert Hansen, known as the Butcher Baker. He's pretty horrific. He used to capture sex workers and dancers, set them loose in the woods, and hunt them like game. For now, you're on the edge with Dr. Shaham Das and the Zodiac Killer. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's a show. This is a show we're doing. Um, I've got Dr. Shaham Das. He's a friend of the show. He's a friend of mine. Uh, on he is the the creator, the the runner, the presenter, the everything of uh, Psych for Sore Minds, one of my favorite YouTube channels. Where he, as a professional, one of the best psychiatrists in the world, those are my words, uh, looks into <laughs> lots of different true crime, different mad things, and people's brains and why people do and did the things that they do do if you're you know you're on your youtube even if you're not a big youtube fan go onto youtube and check him out today we will be talking about the zodiac killer a lot of you will know of the zodiac killer but i'll just let dr shaham say hello um you know and that kind of thing because otherwise it's just me talking all the time so dr shaham how are you doing today mr gold it's always an absolute pleasure to do collaborations with you i'm pretty good thank you yeah i'm all right oh great great well we're doing as a lot of you if you're watching this on a psych for sore minds on Dr. Shaham's channel, then you'll know that we are doing this sort of collab. We're both each putting this out on each other's streams. So you're getting the best of both worlds or or something like that, right? Exactly, yeah. Do you mind telling my viewers a little bit about On the Edge? On the Edge. On the Edge with Andrew Gold. That is my uh podcast. It was prim- primarily an audio podcast with uh well, I guess I speak to people who have the fringiest and edgiest of views and mentalities uh, from psychopaths and murderers and things like that to to the woman who can remember everything that she ever did in her life, even back to the womb and uh, the man who had to eat his friends 
uh, when his when his plane crashed in the, in the Andes. That was a really emotional one. So just all different kinds of people and celebrities and things. And it was initially an audio podcast, and I brought it to YouTube. Um, and it's starting to pick up some traction with the videos and all, all that kind of thing. So do come on over and subscribe and make me and Dr. Shaham your favorite uh, video people. YouTubers. YouTubers, that's what we call them. So um, <laughs> this episode, without further ado, I've done enough ado in this one so far, haven't I? So the Zodiac Killer is the name we use to refer to a serial killer in Northern California in the 1960s. Um, and it was never solved. We never found out who this person was. So to me, that's sort of the American Jack the Ripper, in a sense. Um, and it's certainly the most famous case of its kind in US history. All sorts of films, books and videos have been inspired by the murders with that Jake Gyllenhaal thriller Zodiac, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, what's his name? The guy who did, uh, is it David Fincher? actually seen it i know of the film but i've not actually seen it oh it's such a good film david fincher it is david fincher who made like uh seven and lots of other uh, fight club gone girl and all of those ones um so he made that fantastic film and um yeah the zodiac murdered five victims in the san francisco bay area and was targeting young couples, which is very harrowing in that film, I remember in particular. And it's very scary to young couples. If you're a young couple listening, then, you know, just be thankful this person is no longer at large as far as we know. Two of his victims survived. And the Zodiac himself, through weird letters cut out of magazines and things like that, has claimed to have murdered 37 people. He claimed he was collecting slaves for the afterlife so dr shaham let's just start with like who this person is what do we know about him just from the descriptions from survivors do we have any idea of his physical appearance or anything about him uh yeah so because of his survivors we know a little bit about him we know that he's a white male in his late 20s to early 30s we know he's about average height so around 5 8 to 5 10 he was quite sort of heavy set uh he had curly brown hair or maybe reddish brown hair horn rim glasses and also he had an odd gait so he kind of his balance was a little bit off and he walked in a peculiar manner which actually I think could be relevant because that could tie back to his childhood if he had some sort of deform deformity or disability I wonder if that's all connected to his like psychological makeup. That's really interesting and it sort of fulfills a kind of stereotype and a cliche and I suppose it's a causal correlation thing there because the stereotype might come exactly from the kinds of descriptions of people like the Zodiac or or we might just always have considered you know this kind of Frankenstein gait that someone might have as quite scary and, and gothic. Um, can we can we sort of decipher much about his his personality from from his letters and things like that? So it's, it's quite interesting you say that so I, I think you can to a degree you can you can make speculation um, but educated speculation about his personality what I don't think you can do with any degree of accuracy and I think a lot of people disagree with me is kind of profile him to figure out who he is so I'll give you some specifics so I think what can we tell about him so one of the things that's unique about the Zodiac Killer I think is the very fact that he taunted the police and the press that's not normal so to me that speaks of this like power dynamic so Obviously, he wanted to have power over his victims. You don't, don't need a forensic psychiatrist to tell you that. But I think he's unique because he also had this kind of power over society, over the police and over the press. And I, I think that there's some sort of 
need to dominate other people and you've got to ask where that comes from so it could be from an abusive father it could be that he was maybe bullied at school and that's why i mentioned before that he had this odd gait so you can imagine if he had if he looks a bit weird and he's got his limp then maybe he was a target of, of bullying so i think you could argue that most serial killers have some issues with power but most fear capture but the Zodiac Killer it didn't. He was the opposite of that. He was taunting. He was very narcissistic. He wanted to be infamous. And he was bold. I mean, you don't want to use the word brave, I think, to describe somebody that takes uh, life randomly. But he certainly he certainly was a risk taker. He didn't mind putting himself out there to avoid uh, and, you know, taunting the police to, to try and catch him. Are those signs of, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lay person with regards to psychiatry and things, but are those sort of the bolshiness and the, the lack of a fear of being caught? Do they not point to things like psychopathy? You could say that, yeah. Uh, psychopathy is those things, but it's more than those things as well. So a psychopath is, there's a misconception. A lot of people think that a psychopath is anybody who commits sort of inexplicable violence. And that can happen, but it's more than that. It is when somebody's really antisocial, so they don't care about the law, they don't care about the rights between uh, of other people, they don't learn from their mistakes, they tend to be impulsive and aggressive. So you could argue that somebody who kills like this is all those things, but and this is the this is the crux of the matter. Psychopaths tend to be really charming and manipulative, so they tend to kind of hide in in plain sight. So uh, unfortunately, we don't know enough about the Zodiac Killer to know whether he was a psychopath. Uh, but I think you could say he was manipulative to a degree in that he sort of bullied the press into releasing his material, his letters. But I don't think you could, unless you knew more about him, you couldn't argue that he was necessarily charming in his manipulation. And can someone be, you know, are you either a psychopath or a narcissist? I'm thinking of the dark triad group. Or, uh, or, or can you sort of be, okay, well, I'm a 7 out of 10 for narcissism. I'm an 8 out of 10 for psychopathy. Does it work that way? There's a massive overlap between psychopathy and narcissism. So all people who are psychopaths have to be narcissistic to a pretty high degree, but not all people that are narcissists are necessarily psychopaths. So if you're really into yourself, uh, but you're willing to manipulate and hurt other people to get where you want, then you're both a narcissist and a psychopath. If you're really into yourself, but not to the degree that you would uh, hinder other people or ruin other people's careers or physically hurt other people, but you love being the centre of attention, you love being admired, then you're a narcissist and not a psychopath. I did an interview with, uh, just to go off topic for one second, with M.E. Thomas, the the psychopath, who's she's a lawyer as well, ironically, or, or I don't know if it's ironic, but it's funny because of the jokes made about lawyers all the time. But she said that she doesn't consider that psychopaths, and I think she's speaking about herself, have a sense of self. She's like, I don't have a sense of a self. I'm just, I do and I act and I'm impulsive in the moment and, and that's it. But then it might be that, I guess from what you're saying, that she is a particular psychopath who doesn't maybe have that narcissistic trait, although a lot of the people in the comments were disagreeing, saying that she is a narcissist, the fact that she's doing all these interviews, you know? Yeah. I, not having this, a sense of self is not quite the same as not loving yourself, if that makes sense. So she could not have a sense of self in that she struggles with her identity. So, for example, maybe she doesn't feel very much emotion. So maybe she doesn't love deeply. Maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here. Maybe she's been in relationships and she felt she's felt that her partner has showed her much more attention and affection than she feels the other way, maybe throughout her entire life. So all those things might affect your sense of self. 
but she still could be really egotistical, still really want to be the centre of attention and want praise and attention. So that would still make her a narcissist, even if she didn't have a sense of self. That's really interesting, man. I wish I had your knowledge when I interviewed her, but we did have a fun interview and I sort of said to her things like, I just had a lot of fun with her and I was saying, you know, if, if somebody came in and started stabbing me in the throat, would you mind? And she was just like, Andrew, you know, you don't even understand. Like, I don't, this is not even on my radar, you know? So that was uh, just crazy. But going back to the Zodiac, uh, you talked about, about power. Why is power so important to humans in general? Why do we think power might be important to or have been important to the Zodiac? So, I, I mean, everybody has, everybody likes to live in some sort of power dynamic, uh, even in, even if it's just in their fantasy world. But people have different restrictions on how they go about, go about doing that. So somebody who lacks confidence, somebody who is easily socially anxious or scared might have this as an inner fantasy, but not do anything about it. But I think the reason that power for me, this, so power is one thing that stands out. Narcissism is another thing that stands out. But the reason that, that it stands out for me, for the Zodiac killer is, again, it's just the risk-taking. So he has gotten away with it, but he's still massively increasing the risk. So it's almost about, it's not just about killing people. It's not just about dominating power of his victims, but he wants to show off and he wants to feel in, in uh, superior to the police and to the press. And again, I wonder why that is. I wonder if that's related to something that's happened in his earlier life or his circumstances. So maybe he he feels he felt stupid at one point in his life because he failed exams, or maybe he's like overqualified for a particular job or a lifestyle, or maybe he's had like intellectually superior siblings or parents. That's something that, that quite often happens. So somebody's made to feel stupid when they're younger, when they're older and they have this ability to control things or to control situations or to even take life then they go on a bit of a, they become quite power hungry. And and he went after couples as well. Do you, do you think, do you have an inkling into why that might be? I think, yeah. So I think there's, there's a couple of potential issues here. I wonder whether he struggled himself romantically. So maybe whether he was jealous of seeing people that were happy together. So maybe he's like an incompetent spotty virgin. That would be one possibility. Or maybe he's in some sort of relationship that he's really unhappy about but he slightly ironically wouldn't do anything, you know, physical to get out of that relationship, like harm his wife, but he kind of projects or deflects those insecurities to other couples. So that'd be, that'd be one possibility. Well, the other thing that I, I don't think we can rule out is his sexuality. So if you, if we take it into the context of when these murders occurred, it was late sixties. So, you know, being gay was, there's still a lot more stigma attached to it than now. So maybe he was in a situation, maybe his family members were judgmental where he couldn't, he couldn't express his sexuality. So, you know, he, again, he just repressed these feelings and, and took it out in, in these jealous attacks. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take 
to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. There was one in particular that never has never left me after watching the film, one, one particular murder, and it was at Lake Berryessa in 1969. And I'm just reading, uh, I'll just read out the description of it. And it was, you know, a hooded man had sort of stopped this couple, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, who were Pacific Union college students. Um, so just imagine these two young sort of loved up uh, people. And it was a hooded man who who, claimed, who approached with a gun and told them he was an escaped convict from, from jail. Um, and he had, he had killed a guard and he had to steal their car and needed their car and money to travel to Mexico or something like that. And so the killer had brought uh, pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline and told Shepard, what is one of the, you know, which is the, um, the the woman, Cecilia, to tie up Hartnell, the boyfriend, before he tied her up. The killer checked and tightened Hartnell's bonds after discovering that Shepard had bound Hartnell's hands loosely. Hartnell initially believed this event to be a bizarre robbery, but the man drew a knife while they were tied up, hands behind their back, and started stabbing them both repeatedly. So Hartnell suffering six and Shepard ten wounds in the process. That's the bit that sticks in my mind from the movie because I just they were both sort of, in the movie anyway, lying on their fronts, hands tied behind their backs and sort of waiting for this guy to sort of, okay, he's stolen their car or whatever. And then suddenly he gets this knife out and starts stabbing them while, while they're next to each other, you know, stabbing the first one in the back, then the other. And it, I just... It was the most horrific thing I think I've seen. Um, I can't remember if, if they... I, I guess one of them must have survived. After oh, right, I'm reading further down now. After hearing the victim's screams for help, a man and his son who were fishing in a nearby cove discovered the victims and summoned help by contacting park rangers. Um, so they arrived at the scene. Shepard was conscious. Um, 
and they and, and was able to provide a detailed description of the attacker. They were taken to a hospital in Napa. Shepard lapsed into a coma during transport and never regained consciousness. That's uh, Cecilia. She died two days later, but Hartnell survived to recount his tale to the press. So he survived. So he's one. Of, there were like two survivors in total of the Zodiac, I think, weren't there? I mean, what does that that whole description, that whole scene in your mind, what does that tell you about this man? So while you were describing that, the one thing that was going through my head was that it's quite interesting how the Zodiac killer is an element of both organized and a disorganized serial killer. So just, just for the benefit of our viewers very briefly, generally speaking, serial killers are classified in those two categories. And it is a bit of a blunt tool to classify them. So organized serial killers generally, a little bit like psychopaths, they blend really well into society. They you know, have jobs, they're quite successful, they look good, um, and they can kind of hide in plain sight to, to a degree. And also they are, as the name suggests, extremely organized in terms of their killing. So they pick their victims carefully. They might do a bit of recon and research to decide when and where to attack. So you mentioned before that he had some sort of murder kit, didn't he? He had all this equipment on him. So all of that sounds like he might be quite organized. He's planned it. He's thought through. He's, uh, organized killers would try and make sure they get away without leaving too much evidence at the scene. So they decrease their chances of being killed so all of those things are organized killers a disorganized killer is almost the opposite so they live at the fringes of society they don't look good so they obviously they um, are often disheveled might have mental illnesses they struggle to hold down jobs they don't really have families or function socially but their attacks are very frenzied and very random so it's almost like this build-up of this murderous rage they just feel that they have to discharge so it's not really planned it's more just impulsive i need to go out and kill somebody and so they'll often pick a random victim that just happens to be in front of them in um, so it's the person at the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time and their attacks are frenzied so it sound like what you're describing sounds like a really frenzied just unnecessary attacks because he could have easily walked away with those items because he didn't have to kill them if they were tied up so yeah that's the thing that strikes me it's it seems like he's one of these very rare cases where he's got elements of both and it's just a shame we don't actually know who he is because i'd be fascinated to know what whether his personal life he fits into the organized or disorganized category uh, more closely. So that's part of what makes the Zodiac Killer such an enigma and, and so fascinating all these years on. His legacy uh, does live on and, and people still talk about the Zodiac Killer. People watch the movies and the message boards are abuzz with talk of the Zodiac Killer. So it is that sort of complex complex image of a person or complex uh, summer, well, what was it? Composite. This complex composite of a person. I've got a question for you, Andrew. Do you, do you think that he'll ever be caught, he or she? It's going to be he. Well, so the crimes were in the late 60s, and he was probably in his, by that point, late 20s or something, right? So uh, we're, what, 52 years on, which means this person's, at, you know, at least 75 or something, probably. Maybe 70. Uh, but could easily be 80 or 90. And... I guess that's actually a question better answered by you because you might have a better idea of whether this kind of personality would ever want to come forward. That would be the only reason, wouldn't it, to say, like, look what I did. Or maybe when they die, they'd leave a little note saying, look what I did, that kind of thing. I think it's really unlikely because, as you said, the, if he's even alive, and there's a good chance that he's not, then he's going to be so old. So if he wanted to unburden himself, he would have done it by now, I assume. And if he had some sort of murderous rage that he can contain for whatever reason, if he was going to kill again, then he again, he would have done it by now. You don't 
it'd be very unusual to have an eight-year-old that's going out killing people. Uh, so I think it's extremely unlikely. The only the only kind of scenario that I can imagine them disclosing what they did is exactly what you said. So if they le- left some sort of letter in their in their you know on, with their will or on their deathbed, but even then that's risky, isn't it? Because supposing you think you're dying and then you know you have a heart attack and you think you're about to die, <laughs> then you disclose it and then. You wake up alive when you've been resuscitated and go straight to prison. But can't you have? You must be able to have like uh, secrets that you can reveal in your on the event of your death. I don't know actually. Well, I knew a guy, a guy I interviewed on my podcast called the Coffin Confessor. His name's Bill Edgar. He's from Australia, Queensland, and his job is he's paid ten thousand dollars by people who are dying to attend their funerals and reveal their biggest secrets. So this would be a perfect job for the Coffin Confessor. So he's probably the person to ask right now whether the Zodiac Killer's been in touch with him and whether he's obviously not at liberty to say, whether you think in that, in that example, maybe he probably, he probably would have to say. Yeah, I think he would, because I think, well, obviously there's the moral aspect, but I think he'd probably get in trouble with the police, wouldn't he, if he knew that somebody was a, a serial killer, mass murderer, and didn't disclose it. Depends what the rules in Australia are for sort of mandatory reporting of that kind of thing. But as you know, look, as you point out, there hasn't we haven't heard from the Zodiac Killer for some time. The letters that he was sending from sort of cutting up letters from a magazine, which became after that such a sort of cliche in Scooby-Doo, you'd see all these different like you know, uh, printed letters from different magazines all popped together so nobody could uh, work out who it was. And of course, this was way before DNA and all of that stuff got, you know, DNA testing got, got good, didn't it, wasn't it? So it's even, but you'd think even then it'd be probably touching it all with gloves, putting all the little letters together. Um, the letters stopped in the 70s. The last one was signed off by just a citizen, which I, I think you you've, uh, you believe means that you might have wanted to go back into just, you know, he'd done his job and he wants to become just another person again. Yeah, I think so. I think whatever it was that was inside of him, and frankly, I don't think any any of us can really fully understand. We can have like you know theories, psychological theories, but I think his actions were just so heinous and so violent that I don't think any normal, sane person can really fully understand them. But it seems like whatever it was in his system, he's he's managed to get rid of. So he's managed to wanted to go back into society. You know, when when you were just talking before, one thing that really that I started thinking about was. Uh, hypothetically speaking would a doctor be able to reveal the information so uh, i'm sure you've heard of you know doctor patient confidentiality so we're not allowed to break that if anybody tells me anything i'm not allowed to tell the authorities unless uh, somebody is physically in danger so unless there's a risk issue so if somebody told me they're suicidal which they've done in my career before or they've had hom- or they're having homicidal thoughts then you absolutely can go to the police and disclose that. And in fact, you've got a duty to do that, not just psychiatrists, but all doctors. But if somebody told you that they'd killed many people in the past, I actually don't genuinely don't know whether that would be breaching patient confidentiality because not a current risk issue. If you generally don't think that they're about to go and kill somebody else, say if they've not done it in 50 years, then I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I never thought about that before. You better look that up in case one of your patients tells you at some point. You're like, you need to, because I, I think what's often the case, at least in the movies and stuff, they'll say like, hey, stop talking now, because anything you tell me, I have to, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I don't want to know because I have to report it then. I do know with, you know, child sex offenders uh, with, with regards to with regards to mandatory reporting. I know that in the UK, I gather that even if it's in the past, it has to be reported and it's it's a sort of duty of care issue and you'll be struck off if if you were found to have not reported it and in somewhere like australia or the states it's 
it's stricter than that, and it's not just that you'll be fired; you'll you'll go to prison if, as the doctor, if you don't report that somebody had done this child sex offence, or or even I think that they have the inclination; they need to be sort of put down on a marker, which is why so few of these people will come in for therapy. Whereas in Germany, where I was researching this, they don't have mandatory reporting. And the clinic that deals, the state-sponsored clinic that deals with these people, um, and I, I could name them, but I think it would demonetize our videos on YouTube and stop them being spread out. I could put the P name on these people. But they, um, yeah, they are, you know, they, they don't even take their names at these clinics in Germany. Uh, so that even if they wanted to report them somewhere, no matter what they admit to, they they actually can't be reported to the authorities. So there's an interesting difference between all the countries that I couldn't I couldn't tell you what it is about you know murders that have been committed, but presumably there must be some. If somebody came to you and said they'd committed you know six murders back in the sixties, I think surely you'd have to say tell someone, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like uh, ethically, absolutely. The the answer is quite clear. You have to tell anybody. But I guess I was wondering whether theoretically i could be sued then for breaking patient confidentiality because it theoretically it could be i mean the guy would go to prison so i'm sure he wouldn't give a shit and has bigger concerns but in theory he could probably try and sue me because he could argue that there was no risk issue at that point uh, and therefore i'd break the like the hippocratic oath by uh by telling the authority that's a really really interesting thought tell me but with the zodiac killer do you think he might have suffered from multiple personality disorder uh, no so that's an interesting question i've read in various various articles online that that is a theory and i think that's just because of the way he sometimes addressed himself in some of his letters like he's talking about him almost talking about himself as a separate entity or as a, a third person so multiple personality disorders is, is very often misunderstood it's extremely rare psychiatric disorders. Uh, like all psychiatrists, we have a posh name for it. So it's a, a disorder identity, so dissociative identity disorder. Some psychiatrists don't even ex- believe that it exists as an entity because it is so rare and because so many people try and fake it. So people who get caught for horrendous crimes try and pretend that it's, an, it's another persona inside them that made them do it. Uh, and when it does happen, and I have to say, I've never seen a case of it myself, so I'm... I'm I'm willing to keep an open mind, but I'm quite sceptical. When it does happen, it's when somebody has such a long history of intense, repeated trauma, like being sexually assaulted regularly throughout their entire childhood, that they internalise some of their reality into different characters. And the reason I don't think this man has it is because they tend to be really, really psychiatrically unwell. So they tend to be the kind of people that um, are in and out of hospital for most of their lives, that have seriously self-harmed, tried suicide attempts, um, and they generally really struggle to function. So they're not people that can hold down jobs, generally speaking, for example. Whereas this guy seems, I mean, nobody can excuse what he did, but at least he seems quite organised and, um, yeah, just organised the way that he's pre-planned it. His level of functioning and intellect seems relatively high to have talked to these people and gotten away with it. So I guess what I'm saying is somebody with multiple personality disorders, I think, would not have the cognitive ability and the wherewithal to, to do all this, do all this, not get caught and talk to the police as well. I'm thinking of that movie Split. Did you ever see that? No, I know of it, but I've not seen it. It's got James McAvoy, right? That's right, yeah. I think it's... Um... Probably, I mean, it's a bit. Yeah, it's just just like Professor X. It's all a bit fictional. I think he's got like thirty personalities, and I think it was an excuse for James McAvoy to, you know, have a good go at lots of accents and different kinds of characters. It's a it's a sort of theatre actor's dream. So he'd come back in as like a Scottish woman, and then he'd be a, you know, Latino cleaner and. Uh, How are his accents? 
I don't even remember now. It was a few years ago, and uh, I'm sure they were very good because he's a very accomplished actor, and I mean, especially the Scottish bits because he is Scottish. Um, but it was like he'd come in and go, oh, hello. It was like Mrs. Doubtfire is what I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, hello. And he's like locked up these people. What are you doing over there? You know, uh, and then and then suddenly, what are you doing there? I don't think that, I don't think there's been a crossover with Mrs. Doubtfire and any kind of sort of serial torturers or killers, maybe. <laughs> I think you should pitch it as a TV show idea. It's funny you say that because there is a trailer somewhere on YouTube. It's like a joke, a parody, and it is Mrs. Doubtfire as a horror movie. And it's just reframed the trailer but with uh, horror music and it just shows it's like her, you know him slowly putting on the mask and so hello there children and like dun, 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 all that music <laughs> so it would make for a great horror if they um, remade that but anyway that's the Zodiac Killer thank you Dr. Sean for explaining all of that to us about the, about the Zodiac who probably won't ever be caught we'll be uh, doing another episode you know but you might have it already on your on your feeds or wherever it might be about Robert Hansen the butcher baker in just a moment who used to sort of hunt people in the woods and that kind of thing which it's it sort of abduct these sex workers and let them loose in the woods and hunt them which is uh, pretty grim and horrific um, if you are listening to this on my podcast please do go and check out a psych for sore minds dr shahom's wonderful and very fast growing youtube channel where he does exactly what you know we've we've been doing today and he talks about all different kinds of true crime stuff and what's going on in the mind and if you are watching on his channel come to on the edge with andrew gold where i talk to all sorts of fringe and extreme and interesting fascinating people and also try and get into their minds um so a bit of crossover there thank you for listening thank you dr shahom always a pleasure andrew looking forward to doing our other collab soon oh yeah we're gonna keep doing this stuff as long as you guys keep enjoying it so um yeah thank you for being on the edge. Stay euthymic and remember, I love you. Stay euthymic? Yeah, yeah. What's euthymic? <laughs> so euthymic means like when you have a normal mood. So depression is when you have low <laughs> moods. Mania is where you have an, an increased mood when you've got bipolar. And euthymia is uh, the bit in the middle. Mate, that is so culty. You're a cult. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Shahom, for your excellent analysis. Go subscribe, everyone, to A Psych for Sore Minds on YouTube and follow him, Psych Sore, on Twitter. Now, go listen to our other episode with the Butcher Baker, who hunted women in the woods.